Good morning and welcome to a very special interview brought to you by the Surveyors Trust. My name is Megan Walker and today I have the very special pleasure of being joined by Mr Sidney Kirkby, a famous Australian surveyor. Hello Mr Kirkby, how are you? Good morning to you, mate. I'm well, thank you. That's terrific. You? Terrific, thank you. So we're going to have a bit of a chat um, uh, through a few questions that um, some of the board members of the Surveyors Trust have put to you. Sure, you go if you like. Oh, thank you. And the first one is, we'd love to know, how did you originally get into surveying in the first place? Well, uh, it's um, almost an accident. Um, I had polio when I was five years old, uh, as a little kid, and I'd gone through school years uh, with some degree of physical disability. And I'd always imagined while I was at school that I was going to do law. And halfway through the first term in my last year at school, I uh, I suddenly thought, ah, oh, law is not me, gee whiz, what can I do? And I cast my mind back to when I was five years old. I was a reasonably venturesome child before my polio. And I'd run away from home after deciding that I was no longer going to suffer under the yoke of injustice that my parents were inflicting on me. (laughs) And and when I came back from being run away for half a day or so, um, everyone was out searching for me and they'd left a family friend, old Frank Etherington Goiter, an ex-South Australian famous name, Surveyor General Mm. of South Australia. Uh, and he'd left, been left at home while everyone else searched the bush and the river for me. And at five years old, we four four years old, four and a half years old, we, we sat on the coping of a well in the backyard, and he told me about exploring in South Australia in a century before, nearly a century before. And um, I thought, this sounds just great anyway. It went out of my mind completely, particularly after the polio, where I didn't imagine, I think, for a number of years that I could do anything that that required much in the way of physical activity. Um, But then in my last year of school, I suddenly thought, hey, surveying is what I want to do. I'll be an explorer. So I swapped over to surveying, had a great deal of difficulty swapping from an arts to a science course in... Um, you know, subjects that I hadn't touched in senior school had to be caught up in two and a half terms. So it was, I was inspired by old Uncle Frank, as we knew him. He was, he was a million years old. I, I suppose he'd be 90 or something when I knew him. But he, he seemed like he was always a million years old. Um, but he inspired me to think of the possibility of surveying as a profession and uh, it just absolutely fitted me to a T. It, uh, I, I did just and right up to the time I retired, I went to work every day of my working life thinking, wow, how lucky am I? Isn't that fantastic? And such an impressionable memory lasted you through your whole lifetime, that that vivid discussion with Uncle Frank. My word, my word, and uh, he was he was quite influential in my life because after I had 
my polio and I was uh, incapacitated. Uh, Uncle Frank was one of the people, who, along with my father particularly, who committed themselves to helping me and rehabilitating me. And uh, my father did absolutely marvellous, wondrous things in my rehabilitation. Uncle Frank looked, I suppose, to my my cultural and intellectual rehabilitation. Um, and uh, I can remember Uncle Frank, while I was doing exercises and getting massaged, Uncle Frank would be sitting and reading me um, extracts from from treatises on mathematics or something of that oh, nature. Wow. And uh, he, he was he was very important in my life. The power of mentors. Yeah, my word, my word. It is so important. Um, I always count myself as being singularly blessed as being one of the last batch of people around who did their surviving under the old cadetship system. Now, it, it had much downside educationally. It was, it was a damn difficult way to do it if you wanted to make any sort of fist of it at all. It was very, very hard. But the fact that you had a master and a mentor continuously, and, and my impression anyway, and I think it was probably fairly correct, was that in those times, each master surveyor took a huge degree of pride in his cadet. And uh, consequently, <laughs> we were required to perform, and I, I think that's no no bad thing for young people. Yeah. I remember myself as a as a young person, and I'd have uh, laid back in the traces these years winking if I'd been allowed. Uh, um, so... I, I I always look at the the cadetship system as being difficult, but much going for it. And I would really like to see, well, not just surveying, but I guess all professional education, mm -hmm. even now, cast on the basis of there being a master to each future practitioner. So that while young people were being educated, they had a have a mentor and they have a master and they have wisdom and uh, and thought and and experience. One of the things I noticed in my my working life with national mapping, um, well, we we were taking new intakes of of young graduates, and they had no jolly idea of what a surveyor actually did. Um, some of them, uh, they'd gone through three and four years of, of education and they really did not know what their profession was, uh, particularly in, in relation to leadership of parties and uh, inter interaction with, uh, with clients. Um, or users, so I I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm one of my bandwagons a bit that mm. I love the old cadetship system while 
recognising the warts that it had all over it, I also recognised the tremendous advantage of having gone through that system. Mm. It's an, 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 such a tumultuous time of a young person's life. Having someone to help navigate them through some of those challenges has got to be a valuable approach, doesn't it? My word, yes. Yes, of course. The fact that, that you know, even if only out of self-interest, mm. your master wants you to do well. And that's a, that's a pretty important thing. And I, I don't think I would... You know, much lazier than the average kid around the place, but uh, I'd, I'd have I'd have laid back in the traces much more readily if I hadn't <laughs> had my master. My I was singularly fortunate in that my master was Vernon Fikes, the General of Western Australia, and he was mm. he was a wonderful master and a wonderful man. Mm. Um, I was very very lucky. And I look back and I think, gee whiz, given that sort of start in life and that sort of first footstep on a career, you'd really be trying if you mucked it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and take us now through from that. How did you go from cadetship? And I'm imagining there's a lot of years in hard work in between this. You didn't, you didn't just wake up one morning in Antarctica. But how did that, how did you go from cadetship through to, through to being in, in Antarctica? Well, uh, you know, fairness and justice requires that you be right, but actually you're wrong. I more or less did. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I, was, I was a pretty self-indulgent little brute, and um, there were aspects of surviving I didn't find all that interesting, for example, laws and regulations <laughs> sort of glazed my eyes over fairly rapidly. Um, but I loved astronomy and I loved geodesy. And I was fortunate enough to have a friend of my father's, a chap named Valve Townsend, who during the Second World War had established a substantial reputation as a, a geodetic surveyor and geodetic astronomer. And uh, Alf took on being my coach in astronomy and geodesy. And I loved them. And in fairness to myself, I did them well. <laughs> Unlike almost everything else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, but in 1954, uh, the Commonwealth Government and the Western Australian State Government were putting together a joint expedition into the Great Sandy Desert. It was prior to the first uh, frenzy of oil search in Australia and mm -hmm. there was this big chunk of relatively unknown and unmapped country through the Great Sandy Desert. Uh, and when the Commonwealth and the West Australian Government were putting that <coughs> uh, expedition together, Alf Townsend was the standout obvious man to be astronomer and navigator on the party. For family reasons, he wasn't able to go, and so the organisers said to him, who do you suggest, Alf? And he said, oh, why don't you take young Kirkby? And I was a 
fourth year, third year cadet at the time. Uh, and they hurled themselves on the floor and held their aching sides and <laughs> laughed uproariously and, and said, what do you mean, young Kirby, that, that bloke who you know, can barely struggle his way through his exams? Um, uh, and as Alf pointed out, that while, he, while he might struggle his way through most of his exams, he actually did pretty well in astronomy and geodesy and he would have thought that they were the relevant subjects for this particular venture. So maybe, uh, and lo and behold, quite quite remarkable. But as a as a cadet, I actually was appointed to that expedition. Where could you even astronomical observations, navigating for the party? Uh, so that was that was when I was a young man, boy, boy, twenty. Wow. Um, so then, I, I I loved it. I I loved it, and I think I did that sort of expedition life reasonably competently. Um, and then in 1955, I ruptured an appendix and had peritonitis, and I was lying fairly sick in a hospital in Western Australia. And uh, I heard the late, great Phil Law being interviewed on the ABC. And he was talking about an expedition he was putting together the following year to Antarctica. And I thought that that was just about the thing for me. Mm -hmm. I'll have one, thank you. And um, so I rushed off an application letter to him saying, count me in, Phil. Um, he had mentioned during the interview that they were looking for a graduate surveyor, the minimum age of 28 and a minimum of six years working experience. Um, I was still a student at that stage. And, um, but in my, in my enthusiasm to lodge my application, I may have overlooked mentioning that I was still a student. <laughs> Minor detail. <laughs> yeah. But I did, you can bet I didn't overlook telling him all about what a hot shot I had been in the desert <laughs> expedition. Um, so, anyway, the letter must have been plausible enough because he turned up in Perth to interview me. Um and uh, I remember walking into the old Commonwealth offices in Perth and Phil, who did his interviews alone, he was that sort of bloke, uh, looked me up and down and said, you're a remarkably young-looking 28. <laughs> and I said, no, Mr. Lewis, what you're looking at actually is the most remarkably mature 21-year-old. He said, oh, wow. well, I know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a cheeky young bugger, but I suppose I'd better talk to him. And we, we talked fighting for a couple of hours, and I thought I'd hoodwink poor old fellow. He must have been 45, you know, he's very old. <laughs> Ancient. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, anyway, he, he gave me a Guernsey, and I tumbled in, so it... It was more or less just by sheer accident, um, helped by a little bit of cheating and conniving. Wow, and just goes to show if you don't ask, you don't get. My word, my word, that is the thing. Going back 60 years, 
you identified yourself or anyone else identified you as an Antarctican, the first thing just about anyone would say to you was, oh, aren't you lucky? Gee, I would give my eye teeth to go to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And then when you say to them, when did you last throw your hat into the ring? Mm. And the number of people, hardly anybody ever actually gets around to following their dreams. And that's, that's a shame. That's one of the things I like to talk to kids about. Um, now, if I, if I talk to young people, I push the idea of finding your frontiers, being bold, saying, go for it, go and find your frontier. And what do you think stopping them from putting their hat in the ring? I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's, it's, not a, it's not a diffidence or an attitude that I associate with young people. I look back on myself and my contemporaries, and I think that by and large we thought that it was proper that the world had a, you know, it was our potential oyster. Um, going back about 30 years or so, I was talking and speaking in Melbourne to a graduating class from Melbourne University, surveying students. And um, after talk was over, three of these young people came up to me and effectively berated me for being one of those horrible people that had used up the last frontiers. Oh. Um, and I was horrified. And it's ever since then been something that I put a fair bit of energy into talking to young people, saying that there's an infinity of mm-hmm. frontiers. My frontiers have gone. No one will ever again stand in a place where in all time no human being has ever stood. Mm-hmm. No one will ever again look on vast ter- tracts of terrain that in all time have never been seen. But the world is still as full of frontiers as it has always been. And there will never be any less frontiers than there are today, and there are no less today than there were a hundred or a thousand years ago, because they're in the mind. Frontiers are in the mind. They are all, the reality of a frontier is that nobody has yet stepped over it. And so I, I was quite, oh, I don't know where, particularly young people, fancy young people not thinking that the world is their oyster. Mm. I, you know, it, it's understandable enough when old, old goats like myself say, oh, well, I might put my feet up now and not, not try too hard. Um, I've had a good go. But for young people, I think, gee, the notion of, of not requiring to know what is over the next horizon is very strange. I'm going completely off topic now with my next question. Question without any notice to you. How, how have you used fear throughout your career and what relationship have you had with, with fear? Would you mind answering that? I know it's very off topic. Uh, sorry, what relationship have I had with which? With fear, being afraid. 
So yeah, oh God. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> if you are not in a constant, near constant state of low level apprehension, augmented by jolts of linked to relaxing terror from time to time, you're not trying. Love it. Um, you go through life. Two things I know and I've learned, and, and one of the few places to learn things about yourself and about people is Antarctica mm. because there's not much external that comes between you and the reality. Mm. Um, things I know is that everybody viable in the sense that everybody is corruptible and everybody is breakable through terror. I know that with absolute certainty. Mm-hmm. So we go all, most of us go through life hoping that today will not be the day that we find the terror that breaks us or someone finds either the currency or the quantum which will, will corrupt us. So without Fear, I don't think you can be trying. Fear at all sorts of levels. The reality is that um, it's it, it quite a, a fraught dog sledging, say, in Antarctica, in months with, with no help on earth for you but for your two comrades and your little team of dogs um, hundreds, thousands of miles away from the other next human being, no possibility of survival without your comrades and what you carry. If you do not feel fear, then you shouldn't be there because you are a danger to yourself and everyone else. Um, so, fear... Fear is... It's a, it's a very, uh, nature has it worked out. Nature, nature knows how to, how to do this business. Yes. Um, so, it, it, so it gives the rational us fear. What, the, the, the slight trick I think is in becoming aware enough and conditioning yourself to be not hampered too much by fear, not be paralyzed fear by fear, not to be diminished in function by fear. Uh, mostly, I think fear is a, is, a, is a stimulus that lifts your performance, but in extreme cases and in bad cases, of course, it does diminish you, it paralyzes, mm. and that's, that's awful when it happens, of course. Mm. Um, oh, but it, it's, it goes with the territory, yep. Yeah. Now, you are well and truly one of the most interesting people I have ever spoken to in my life, and I am so grateful to have had this time to talk with you, but I'm going to be cheeky and wrap us up because I don't want you to give away all of your life um, experience and wisdom because the people listening have to come and hear you at our Christmas party, (laughs) which, which is on the Friday the 7th of December. 
And that's when I'll ask you the questions that I was going to about conventional surveying and how you overcame it and returning to normal life. But you have got wisdom in spades. So thank you so much, Mr. Kirkby, for sharing some of your thoughts. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had before we wrap up? Oh, no, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I, uh, I always uh, go out of my way to pay a tribute to my father, particularly who rebuilt me after my polio, and um, and my mentors in my life. I, I'm just I'm constantly aware of how much I owe them. That's about all we get in for there. Absolutely. No, brilliant. Thank you so much. That's just been an absolute pleasure, and we, we can't wait to see you in person. And, um, oh, gosh, the questions that are going to come out from that room, <laughs> we'll have to get you a, a good comfy chair and a beer. I think they're going to be. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, and we look forward to um, to seeing you on the 7th of December. Uh, all right, Owen. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye.